Good evening again. Uh, that was a blessing of a meal to get to have. That that was really great. And the dessert. Also, the special music tonight was has been fantastic again. Uh, you know, Faith Promise is is a neat thing to get to do where you can pray to the Lord and and ask what what can you what is it that the Lord wants me to give? I'm sure all of you have stories how you have prayed and you have sought what the Lord wants you to do and there was times where you were wondering I don't know how I'm going to do this but somehow I'm going to do this. And you know, we got a burden you know, while we were, I was pastoring out in Houston, and we got a burden to be helping this this missionary. And it's not like we were making like like tons of extra money, and it, it seemed like everything just kept on going up more and more expensive. Eggs went from ninety nine cents to like close to four bucks. You know, just like just for eggs. And, and, you know, during that time, and this is not being critical of the church at all because it didn't happen with anybody, there wasn't people saying, you know, you're paying $4 for a carton of eggs, so we're going to just quadruple your your paycheck right now. Like, nobody was doing that to anybody. It's not like it wasn't just happening to me. It was no, nobody was doing that. And so you, you find yourself, like, can God provide? Can God provide? And God always provided. In some way, some fashion, God always provided. And uh, Faith Promise is a, is a great tool a church can use for supporting missions, and it's a great opportunity to give. And you say, well, what, what can I do without to see the Lord's work go forward? And that's, that's an exciting thing to look at. We're looking at God's Word, and specifically how, how God's Word gives life and we're going to be now in Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 18. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 18. Sorry, 15 through 20. Our, our desire to go to Spain is, is not just to evangelize, which is evangelism is very important, but it, it's also to be involved in people's lives, to see them grow, to become more like Christ. And, and that's the point, that they look less and less like themselves and more and more like Christ. That, that's the whole point. So we're not satisfied if we say, oh, wow, we, we, just, we just won a thousand people to the Lord. Now we're going to move on to the next city. But, but rather, it's the involving our lives and their lives to help them and them help us because we're in a constant process of becoming for. Be, being conformed to the image of Christ. So them helping us and us helping them in that growth of maturity. We're in Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 15 through 20. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, this is the Word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. 
For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, I say, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look at this text that that we will see this this hymn, this song, and it be a, a hymn that would resonate with us, that we would contemplate it, not just for curiosity's sake, but for for the purpose of knowing you, Father, for life transformation. Father, we know that it would glorify you, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, and we pray that this text will have that purpose, that the Spirit would work within us for that end. And we know that that will glorify you, and that's what we desire. Father, I pray that if there is someone here that's not saved, that they would understand their need for a Savior, and that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ's work on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. As I had stated earlier, Paul is writing to this, this group of believers, and a time has passed from when Epaphras probably started this ministry to when Paul is in prison and he's writing this letter. The, the, the church has already been established, but there's a desire that Paul has, and it's a, it's a twofold purpose. And that purpose is, one, to, to grow and to know the Lord. And we can see that in verse, uh, verse 9. It says of chapter 1, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul has this desire that they will be filled with this understanding of his will and all spiritual understanding. Now, that, that's an amazing prayer request that he has this desire for the Colossian believers to be filled with the, the knowledge of his will and all spiritual understanding. Now, imagine... Imagine that that somehow happened, just like uh, how you update your apps on your phone. It just like, boom, automatically. You, know, you see the little thing, and voila, it's there. What would you do with the with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding? What would you do with that? Well, there's three three options that you could do. The first option would be, you could reject it. You know, this is the most absurd stuff that I've ever thought of in my life. Who in the world would follow this? No, this is this is ridiculousness. Now, you guys are here on a missions conference on a Saturday afternoon. I doubt that any of you would say that. Another option would be, wow, God, this is awesome stuff. Oh my word, this is great. This this wisdom and this knowledge and the spiritual understanding is fantastic, except for this part over here. And if you would just hand it over to me, I think I can help you out and fix it. Well, again, I doubt that you guys on a, on a Saturday afternoon would ever contemplate saying such a thing to the Lord. I mean, just the pridefulness that it would require to say, God, I will help you with your plan. The third option would be, I'm going to put it into practice and I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey. I have this knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, and I'm going to put it into practice. And that's that's the point. That's that's verse 10. Verse 10 says, that ye might, or for the purpose that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, increasing 
in the knowledge of God. The point of having this knowledge is so that it works itself out through your little fingertips, through your little toes, through your eyes, through your mouth, that you walk worthy. He's using walking as a metonymy to replace this idea of how one conducts their life, how they live daily. In fact, this idea of walking gets resonated in each of these chapters. It's mentioned here in in verse 10, but then again in chapter 4, I mean, sorry, chapter 2 and uh, verse 6, as as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And then in chapter 3, verse... Seven, he's talking about the former way that they used to live, how they used to be involved with idolatrousness and inordinate affections, evil desires, et cetera, et cetera. And it says in verse seven, in which ye also formerly walked when you lived in them. So he, two times he tells them, walk this way. You used to walk this way. And then in chapter four, he, he mentions it again over in Verse 5, walk in wisdom towards those who are without redeeming the time. It's an imperative. Walk, conduct yourself in this manner, in wisdom towards those who are without. Are there any, are, are there any who are without here in Charlotte? <laughs> There's a bunch, aren't there? They need to hear the gospel. And what Paul is telling, telling the believers in Colossae is, is you need to walk wisely towards them that are without, redeeming the time, taking advantage of the time. And that's what we have to do in, in Spain, in Bilbao. Now, this idea of walking, you can you can zoom out a little bit more. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 also talks, talks about walking worthy. You can go all the way from Genesis, where this idea of, of man, Adam, and Eve walking with God. Cain is, is told to leave the presence of the Lord. He walks away from God. Enoch walked with God and was no more. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22, he tells them to walk in, in his statutes, in his commandments. This, this idea of walking permeates Scripture. In fact, when God goes to Jonah and tells him, I want you to go to Nineveh and, and call out against that city, uh, in which direction did, did Jonah walk? In obedience? He walks in disobedience, away from where the Lord wanted him to go. This idea of walking Paul uses here, he says, I want you to increase in this knowledge so that it, it, it affects how you behave so that you can walk worthy. For the end result, the end result is found in verse 28 of chapter 1. We're back in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, it says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or you could say complete, or you could say mature in Christ Jesus. The end result is that the person be, think, behave like Jesus. That, that's the whole point. That's why we come together is so that we can be encouraged one another to be more like Christ, less like ourselves. Now, Paul is writing this, and positively, he is encouraging them to have this knowledge of God that permeates how they act and behave so that it, it glorifies the Lord. On the flip side, on the negative side, he's, he wants to warn them. He wants to warn them. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, And this I say, lest any man should deceive you with enticing words. And then verse 8, Beware, lest any man should take you captive through philosophy and vain deceit, 
according to the traditions of men, according to the rudiments of the world, and not according to Christ. He's warning them that there is a way of thinking that's going to lead to a vain life. Isn't that sad? There's someone to live their whole life and it's all vanity. It's all for nothing. And there's there's a lot of people doing it. They're, they're living for themselves, for what they desire. And at the end, it's all vain. It's all pointless. He's, he's warning them so that they don't have a vain lifestyle following after the world. So on one side, he's encouraging them positively, get this information and live it out. On the flip side, there is this, this warning that you could live a very vain lifestyle. Now, in this, in this process, it is verse 15. And you say, well, why, why should I live to become more like Christ? At verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. This is a, a really neat thing to look at because he, it refers back to Christ, verse 13, talking about the Son, who, according to verse 3, is Jesus Christ. He is the image. Now, it sounds very similar to uh, Genesis where it says, uh, God says, let us make man in our image. Uh, man is made in the image of God. The, the prepositional phrase shows a close relationship. But this isn't a prepositional phrase. This is the image. In fact, he's the image of the invisible God. Therefore, he is, he is revealing what cannot be seen. And you say, when in the world does, does Christ reveal that can't be seen? I mean, the law of the Lord is perfect. You know, what, what's, what's more than perfect? You know, well, the law shows us what we've done wrong. But through Jesus Christ, we can have life. And, and that's what he's going to mention over in, in verse 18, how he has, he has reconciled us through the blood of his cross, verse 19. Yeah, verse 20. How he's, This is what Christ has done, and it reveals an aspect of God's grace that the law just doesn't do. Now, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. In other words, he has the privileges of the firstborn over every creature. There's nothing striving against him trying to take first place. No, he he has those privileges. In verse 16, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible. That's an amazing thing to think about, especially since the invention of the telescope. Supposedly, you can zoom way, 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 way out and see stars and planets way, 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 way far away. I mean, at the time that Paul wrote this, he, they didn't have that. And they didn't have the Hubble telescope and all those pictures. And think about the fact that they've developed the, the microscope that can zoom in. Supposedly, they can even see with an electric microscope an, an atom. Can you imagine that? The electrons moving around, the protons with the neutrons, and they can see that. It used to be invisible. And it says that Christ has he's made all this. But it doesn't just stop at, at the physical things. He goes on to say, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Wow, that's incredible. Even, even governments, even political systems, yes, <laughs> even those things. 
And it says, verse 17, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, we're, we're staying, we're in this building, and I say, wow, the, you know, this building feels really solid. And, and Pastor Jeremiah says, well, Daniel, the, the best architects in, in Charlotte designed this building. And not only that, the best workers built this building. We didn't have any of those lazy people from Winston. No, 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 no. We didn't have any of those lazy people from Greensboro. We had the best of the best of Charlotte come. And that's why this building is so... Imagine if Christ decided to let go just for a second. If he just decided to say, you know what? Forget it. All our molecules would go in a thousand different directions. He holds it all together. All of it. Even what we can't see with our... He holds it all together. This is an amazing thing of this Christ. He... He does this, this incredible power that he has. And it says, going on in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He is the head of the body. And then he clarifies what this body is, and he calls it the church. Now, there there are some denominations that claim to have a head of the church at a certain place here there somewhere none of those people are the head of the church christ is the head of the church and christ therefore has authority over what the body does can you imagine how how it shows an ailment when a body part is not obeying what the head is doing right it shows an ailment Something's not right with that body part if it's not obeying the head. He is the head. And if churches are going to be established here, or if they're going to be established in Spain, they need to understand that Christ is the head. And and as a head, he dictates what the church does. Like, we can't just make stuff up. Like, baptism is antiquated. We're not going to do that anymore. You know what? We're going to have a, a trampoline park, and we're going to kind of practice the rapture instead of doing baptism, because baptism is death. We don't get to decide that. We, we don't get to say, you know what, I don't, I don't like the Lord's Supper. I, I'm more into steak than bread and, and juice. We don't get to do that because we're not the head. He decides what it is, and we conform ourselves to what Christ wants. And furthermore, it says he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And as being the firstborn from the dead, we have hope. And then he goes into saying that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, before we look at that word preeminence, let me just mention that he might have is a subjunctive mood, which subjunctives give into the area of possibility. It's possible for this to happen. Now, when we look at preeminence, preeminence, the word eminence, we don't use a whole lot. Maybe you've, you've watched an old film and someone went up to the king or the queen and they bowed and they said, your eminence, you know, or, or maybe, you, you know, you read in a book where they went up to the cardinal and they kissed the finger, the, the ring, and they said, your eminence. It's not a word that we usually use a whole lot, but it, it means first place. And, and the interesting thing about this word that Paul has used is that it has a prefix to it. So it's not that it's just eminence which is important, but it has preeminence, which is way above any important thing is Christ. Way above. Now, God has blessed us with so many good things, right? But every once in a while, the blessings of the Lord 
start to compete with with Christ being preeminent. Grandparents love their grandkids, don't they? If you get cornered by one of these grandparents, what do they do? They pull out their phone and they start showing you this whole list of, of pictures. Gardens, gardens are, are a blessing. And we're getting to that time where people are, are getting, thinking about what they're going to plant. And are gardens a blessing from the Lord? Oh, yeah. Careers, careers are important. God tells us to work. But every once in a while, some of those blessings that God gives us in our heart begins to compete with Christ being preeminent. And we we know when that's happening because when it becomes a fight between that blessing that God has given us and Christ, following Christ, we want to claim 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And then we do, we go after the other thing away from Christ. In other words, sometimes we allow the blessings of the Lord to become idols in our heart. And we start to serve the blessing of the Lord rather than Christ. And that's where that subjunctive mood, that area of possibility, is that it doesn't happen automatically. You don't just get saved and automatically make him preeminent. It doesn't happen that way. God has determined, because it says in verse 19, for it pleased the Father in, that in him all fullness should dwell. But many times, we substitute Christ with blessings that God gives us. What we want to do in going to Spain is to share the gospel and to help the people of Bilbao see that Christ needs to be preeminent. More important than their culture, more important than their traditions, more important than family ties, more important than anything is that Christ would be preeminent. You know what the people of Charlotte also need to know? is that Christ is preeminent. More than any family, more than any career opportunities, more than anything else, they need to understand that Christ is preeminent. He goes on to say, and this is a neat reason why he should be preeminent, verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, he made peace through his death on the cross, his shedding of his blood for me to have peace with whom? Well, it says, uh, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether it be things on earth or things in heaven. We were alienated, separated from God. And there wasn't a thing in the world I could do to inch my way forward to God. But God, in his mercy and his grace, he sent his son to die on a cross and he shed his blood. And if I would put my faith in that work, I can be reconciled to God. Therefore, he is preeminent in my life, or he should be. That's the message we want to give in, in Bilbao. That's the story. That's what we want to tell people. That's what we want to disciple people so that they can live with Christ as being preeminent in their life. Now, the question is, as we wrap things up here, is Christ preeminent in your life? And you're like, Daniel, I'm here on a Saturday at a missions conference. This is a no-brainer. Of course, of course, Christ is preeminent. It's one of those things that I wish that once we made that decision, it just permanently stayed there. I, I really wish that, that if I made it today, it was just going to stay that way forever and ever. But it's a constant dying to self. It's a constant taking up your cross and following after 
the Lord. I wonder, is Christ being preeminent, or has some of the blessings of the Lord taken that preeminence? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this evening, and thank you for this church. Father, thank you for their passion uh, of supporting missionaries, even through through faith promise, above and beyond their, their offerings. Father, but we want to live with Christ as preeminent, and that takes a, a reflection on ourselves. And, and, and Father, I pray that we haven't substituted Christ with some of the blessings that you have given us. Obviously, sin is a no-brainer. We shouldn't be doing that. But Father, sometimes those things that you give us, that you bless us with, we put in place of Christ. And I pray that if any have done that here today, that we can repent of that. In Jesus' name I pray. Let's stand with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. Preaching on the